Well, good morning, Wendover Hills. How are you today? Hmm, we're going to have to step up the coffee ministry. <laughs> A little more life. Can I tell you something uh, to start this morning? Well, I don't know why I asked you. I'm going to tell you anyway. The Lord is still in the business of transforming lives. If you are somebody this morning that uh, you're broken, you're searching, you're weary, this is the place for you because God wants to still transform lives. If your neighbor that you live near, you can tell they're broken, they're hurting, they're searching for answers in life, God wants to transform their life. Your coworker that, that you work with, you see every day and you know the, the stuff they go through, God wants to transform their life. So this morning, God either is wanting to transform you or he's wanting to use you to go out and share the word that he wants to use to transform them. So grab hold of that this morning. We heard it through the music, and, uh, and I believe God is in the place of doing that business still. Do you believe that? Good. Well, let's take a look at our message this morning. We're going to walk through the series uh, that we entitled Seeing God's Will. There's this phrase some of you may be familiar with. The phrase is silence is madness. Have you ever heard that phrase, silence is madness? Basically what it speaks to is that if you cut off someone's voice and they're not allowed to articulate their opinions or their thoughts, that that causes madness. If some of the things that that are rolling through their head and they, they never are given the opportunity to tell you what they think or to interact with ideas, that's madness. Silence is madness. Now, I know some of us, us with little kids, we don't buy into the silence is madness. We buy into silence is golden. It's wonderful. Silence is madness. Have you ever used the phrase in a situation, maybe you've said these words, they don't want to hear what I think. That's speaking towards this, this silence is madness type of feeling. And so we often, we, we go on with this frustration. Now, it doesn't mean we have the right to share what we think in every situation, right? But at the same time, we are a people, we are designed to share stuff. We're designed to interact, to brainstorm, articulate, to share. And often when we're not able to share, maybe the good that could come out of our thoughts is never realized. Silence is madness. So it is with God's voice. God's voice is this voice of great power, this voice that wants to speak into us. And whether he speaks with this kind of thunderous voice or this quiet whisper, he speaks with authority. He speaks in a way that it can just pierce our hearts, cause us to drop before him, cause us to say, whatever you want for me, Lord, I will surrender before you. Unfortunately, we often cut off that voice. Even those of us who claim grace, who believe in Christ, we often set up our week and our days where we don't hear that voice. We don't hear God. In fact, it leads us sometimes to say another set of words. I just don't hear from God. In the day of iPads and, and smartphones and uh, what, what, what is the cable that you can kind of pause the live TV? So, I would really love that. I'm not going to lie. Uh, the Bluetooth world and, and all of that, we set up our days often to say the words, I just don't hear from God. Well, this morning we're going to continue this series, Seeing God's Will, but we're going to specifically look at a way that we can hear from God. 
The passage we were talking through last week is 1 Samuel chapter 14, 1 through 14. So if you want to take the time to kind of flip through that, find that uh, more towards the beginning of your Bible, take a look at that. We'll get to it in just a moment. But we're going to talk about this hearing, and we're going to talk about it in terms of God's whisper. Next week, we're going to actually discover how do we know if what we're hearing is actually from God. So there was a time in high school, I was sitting in English class, and I heard such a voice, such a whisper from God. Um, it was very clear. I can, I can remember the setting vividly, uh, as you often might do when you hear from God. Uh, also, because this was right about the time somebody would carry the mail to the teacher, you know, this was before email, so they would carry the mail to the teacher, and there was, you know, a pretty good-looking girl who would come around and carry that uh, mail. So I always kind of kept an eye on when that would be, and I uh, had a window seat. And so um, it was right about that time that God whispered uh, to me. And this is what he said. He said, Tom, you should probably go in the full-time ministry. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I had been a Christian for about a year. I had been being mentored by my youth pastor and discipled by him, spending a lot of time with him. And I heard this voice, Tommy, you probably should go in the full-time ministry. Now, my initial thought was, well, that's something people that are longtime Christians do. That's something who, if you have a pastor as a father, you go into the ministry. Uh, but you don't go into the ministry if you've been a Christian for about a year, and you're still a bit clueless on how this whole Christianity thing works. You just know that's the way, and I want to follow that way. But the voice said, you ought to go into the full-time ministry. So after a thought or two, I said, oh, okay. And it was it. That was my calling. That's, uh, that's how incredible of a story it is. It was that quick, but that was the whisper of God. And it was really clear. There was another time when I thought I heard the whisper of God as well. I was in church. This was just a little bit before this. And I heard a message on tithing. I had no idea what tithing word was. I had never heard of the concept at all. And the pastor was sharing about how in the Old Testament they would bring a tenth into the storehouse. Of, of whatever their income was, which was, was normally their grain. And they would bring it in, and they would, they would give that uh, to the church. And so I thought, wow, this is, this is a new concept to me. And I was impacted by that. I was 17, and I decided, you know, I'm going to start tithing. But at the same time, there was also this girl I had my eye on. Her name was Kelly. And so it was, seemed very logical to me that if I started tithing, the Lord would also supply Kelly uh, as my girlfriend, and she would fall madly in love with me, and, uh, and we'd live happily ever after forever. So that's what I did. I started tithing, and one week I gave some money. I was working at Burger King, so I had this, you know, incredible income rolling in. And so I started tithing. I would calculate the 10th percent, and I would bring it in. And so I did it for one week, and the second week, and the third week, and uh, no Kelly. <laughs> Uh, never quite materialized. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. Our last phone conversation, I was on the phone with Kelly, and she said, how do you think you rate me? And I said, well, I mean, guys, you know what you say. You said, well, 10. You know, no doubt. I mean, you're incredible. Here's what you don't do, guys, if you haven't ever figured this out. Don't ever flip the question back to the girl <laughs> and say, well, how do you rate me? Never do that because girls do not have the same need and obligation to tell you you're a 10 if you're really not. So she said, about a six. <laughs> that was as much of a relationship as I ever had with Kelly. Never quite materialized. I probably didn't quite hear the whisper correctly. 
though the Lord definitely taught me about tithing. And as a 17-year-old, I've been tithing since that day, 20 years from then, um, through a funny little story like that. How do we hear God's whisper? Let's look at our passage again and see from the, what the Word teaches us in this, in this section. I'm only going to read the first couple verses, the first three. So if you look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 14, let's start at the beginning. It says this, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying at the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Elijah, or, I'm sorry, Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Now, before we jump straight into these three verses and talk about it, let me give you a little background of what's going on and what's led up to this passage. Now, as I told you last week, you know, Saul is the anointed king. Samuel has done the anointing. Now, this was not God's plan. God's plan was that the people would not look like all the other kingdoms out there and have a king that they would bow down and they would worship. But the people, people kept pushing and pestering and begging of God, kept rationalizing why this should be the way that they go. And God in the end said, fine, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And you're going to kind of see what comes from that. You know, God works that way sometimes in our life. If we'll keep pushing against him, asking for something that he does not want to give us, that he knows is not in our best, there are times where God will say, okay, you can have it. And you're going to have to probably deal with what comes with that. And so the people did. Samuel anoints Saul king, and it didn't take very long. In chapter 13, uh, Saul, or Samuel departs from Saul. He, he's going to go and pray for the people. He's gone for seven days. And he says, Saul, I'm going to be returning in seven days. Now during that seven-day period, things were not progressing very well for Saul. After Jonathan attacked this Philistine outpost, uh, not only did Saul take credit for it, but he sounded the victory horn. And this didn't sit very well with the Philistines who, uh, who were feeling like we're kind of in the middle of this battle and all Jonathan do, did was come up and attack a small outpost. And so the Philistines responded. And they responded by pulling people together and growing their army. They started to, uh, to look outside of themselves and to pull together other people groups in this army. And the Bible actually tells us in, in 1 Samuel 13 that they pulled together 3,000 ch chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and this is what the Bible describes as soldiers, soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so this army collects in an area where Saul wouldn't have to send a scout too far to see this in front of him. This is how they responded. So how did the Israelites respond to this army? This is what the Bible says. It says, when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that the army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad, meaning they joined the army or at least took refuge in their camps. That was the response of the Israelites. Well, obviously Saul is incredibly concerned about this and he is just kind of hopefully awaiting the return of Samuel because he wants a blessing. Uh, and the way that they would do a blessing at that time is they would have a burnt offering before the Lord, and that burnt offering would be a blessing offering, and then the Lord would bless. Seven days are up, and Samuel has not come back. 
And Saul starts to panic a little bit more. So Saul decides he'll do the burnt offering himself. Now, this seems like not a big deal, but in the Old Testament, only the priest could offer that burnt offering. And so Saul kind of supersedes that and takes control of the situation himself, and he does the burnt offering. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel 13.10 when Samuel comes back in. It says, Just as he, Saul, had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. Doesn't it just seem to always work that way? Just as you finish doing the thing that you probably shouldn't have been doing, then that person comes in and says, Hey, uh, what are you up to? What are you doing there? My son TC, bless his heart, does not have the art of getting away with things. And so for TC... Uh, we almost always come in right at the tail end of him, I don't know, pounding his brother um, or uh, doing something mischievous, and we always kind of catch it. This is what's going on here. He just finishes, and Saul pops up. And look at how uh, or Samuel pops up. Look at how Saul re- greets him. He just comes right out and greets him. It doesn't say he hid in shame or he thought, oh, I better think of something quick. He goes right out almost as if he didn't even know he had done something wrong. This is what Samuel says, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord. And this is the powerful one. Now your kingdom will not endure. Now think about Saul here. He is the king. In many of the other cultures that had kings, he would be a divine figure. We know that's not the case here. But he would be looked at in others other cultures as kind of this all-powerful. You have this king in this situation who is anointed by Samuel, and now Samuel himself is telling him, you blew it, buddy, and your kingdom is not going to endure. I mean, can you imagine what this would have done to Saul? Would have crushed him. This was a major, major blow. Not just a little mistake to kind of get past. This was huge. And so now it brings us to chapter 14, and let's look again at this, verse 2 and 3. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. Remember the numbers? 3,000 on the other side, soldiers as much as the sands of the seashore. He has 600 men now. Among them was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Now, Last week I told you this passage is not necessarily one you would read right away and say, oh, it's clear in this passage on how we see God's will. But this, this small verse, verse 3, is a clear way that we can learn how we should be looking at God's will. And the key to understanding this is found not only in chapter 13, which we just looked at, but this short phrase, among them was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. You know, just what is an ephod? You might ask. I'm glad you asked this morning because I just happened to have it in my notes here and we'll talk about it for the next few minutes. An ephod was this brightly covered uh, woven breast, uh, excuse me, vest that was often worn by the priest. Thank you that only a couple of you heard that. Um, That was worn by the, the priest. Now it wasn't always just worn by a priest, but most often it was worn by a priest and it was used for some type of religious ceremony. So what would happen was the priest would wear this ephod and he would go where the Ark of the Covenant was not going, or where it couldn't go. And this was a way for the people to actually hear from God. See, this this priest with the ephod would be there, and people would basically 
there would be a religious ceremony where they were seeking to hear from God. Now, the ephod did not like tangibly speak, um, but just like the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the presence of God, so was this ephod when they were out, in this case, on a battlefield. And so this ephod was a very important symbol out there. And so you could see in this situation that Saul is holed up with his men, only 600 at this point. Remember, he, he used to be in the thousands, but we read in chapter 13 that they had scattered all over the place, hidden caves and whatnot, um, as well as some even went over to the enemy's camp. He only has 600 now, and they're looking at this ephod. Basically, what the passage is telling us is Saul is searching for something from God. He's just blown it to this devastating level. And now he's sitting and he's wanting to look and hear from God. And the author says the ephod, because the author wants us to know that this was an important thing that was actually going on. And so Saul is waiting. He's searching. He's seeking. He's wanting to hear this word from God. Among them was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Now, I'm, I wonder today, how does God want to speak to us? I don't think uh, many of us are wearing an ephod around. I certainly, on any Sunday morning, will probably not have one on. There's not even a clear understanding of Scripture exactly what an ephod looked like. There's only two verses that give a physical description of an ephod, and it's vague at best. How does God want to speak to us today? I can say this for sure. God wants us at times, as his people, to be quiet before him and to just seek him and let him answer. Now, if you read this passage, you can read it 20 times in a row if you want, and one thing you will never find is an answer from God. God never speaks to Saul in this passage because he's seeking. But nonetheless, there's significance in his seeking to sit and to look and to search for what God is saying. Maybe you're like Saul. I know I have been many times in my life where you've just blown it, where you've just entered into it, maybe by your choice or maybe by circumstances outside of yourself, where you're just kind of broken. It just happened and you're like, man, how do I recover from this? That's how Saul feels. How do I recover? I have 600 men. They've got a vast army. What do I do? And I seek you. And that's what he's doing here this morning. So for the next couple of minutes, let's talk about just two things that we learn from Saul here that I think can relate specifically to us. Whether you're in a position where you're, you've blown it or you're broken a bit or you're looking for life transformation or, or whether things are rolling good but you're wanting to just keep seeking what God has to offer. I also want to allow that this as a church is something that we need to corporately come together and seek God's will on vision and direction here at Wendover. First thing is this. Saul recognized he needed to see God's will. Have you ever figured you needed something after the fact? Like maybe you're putting together bunk beds in your new house for your kids, and you work a long, long time, and uh, there's a lot of noise that's coming from the construction, mostly coming out of your mouth. Uh, Pieces are flying and tools cannot be found that you used about two minutes ago. And uh, when you're done, hallelujah, everything's complete and it appears to be a bunk bed. Or not. 
uh, because there's nine screws that are laying there that are unused, and you knew they were in the bag, meaning they came off the bunk bed when you moved. And sure enough, you figure out where those go, and of course they go on the undersiding, uh, where you've already screwed together the other boards and can no longer get to the holes that they go in. Um, so that's a moment of just faith where you move on and say, well, Lord, don't let the boys fall. Um, <laughs> The boys were uh, really close that day to sleeping on mattresses on the floor that night and forever. But uh, we did, uh, there's nothing sometimes that hammer and nails can't fix. So uh, instead of nine nails to replace nine screws, um, there was a multiple of nine. Let's call it that. Needing something after effect. Let me save you a little headache in other areas of your life. You need God. You need his will. You need his direction. I need it as desperately as you need it. And so, before the fact, let's go before him and seek him. Let's go before him and ask, God, what is the direction that you would have for my life? What do you want me to do with this day? What do you want me to do with this neighbor? What do you want us as a church here at Wendover Hills to do and to be about I told you, even though Saul is in the position of king, which in other cultures was this all-knowing rank, in this particular moment, and this may be the only time we see it in the life of Paul or Saul, but at this particular moment, he is vulnerable in this passage and is seeking this understanding from God. What he's really doing here is he's understanding his place and he's understanding God's place. And he's realizing there is a difference in that. And often we function somewhat like we're on the same level as God. We love the songs like, I am a friend of God, which is a great song. But we forget sometimes our place and God's place. And Saul is realizing this in this passage. And so he sits and he waits and he seeks. There's this great passage in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is standing before the throne room of God in this vision and as he's standing there, he's seeing these incredible things happening. He's seeing angelic beings are flying around and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And even at their voice, the, the whole place shakes and rumbles. And Isaiah's response, that's pretty cool. Smoke's a nice touch. No, his response is, woe is me. I am a person of ruin. I'm not worthy of this. I, I can hardly even get my eyes up off the steps to look upon this glory. And probably the only reason he can is it's because it's in this vision. That's what, uh, what Isaiah is saying. He's understanding his place is here, broken, sinful. And God's place is this place of glory and honor. And the greatest thing in God's word is that God, despite those place differences, God says, you know what? I'm going to come right down and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to come right down and I'm going to lift you out of that junk in your life. I'm going to strengthen. I'm going to restore you. And we will sing, I am a friend of God. And we'll sing it with authority. And so at this moment, at least for this section of Scripture, Saul is saying, I'm seeking God because he is God and I am not we have to understand we have a need for God, a need for his direction, a need for his vision in our life. 
And that's the first thing we have to realize. Secondly, in Saul, he says this, Saul placed himself in a spot to see God's will. It's not just enough to say, I know I need God, but we have to place ourselves in a spot to actually see God's will. So the most colorful character I ever had in my college baseball uh, coaching career was this kid by the name of Landon Owen from Paducah, Kentucky. Now, we didn't call him Landon. We called him the goat man. We call him the goat man because there's a story about him and his brother one crazy night where they were out in the fields of Paducah, Kentucky, and they stumbled on this shadowy figure out there, and they named this figure the goat man. Now, I'm actually not allowed to tell you the goat man's story under verbal contract with the goat man himself. I'm only allowed to tell the story if deemed by the goat man that the mood is right. Um, That's a verbal contract. I'm not making that up. But I could tell you another story about the goat man because there's many. Landon was that guy on the team, and you know that guy, that constantly just focuses a little bit different than everybody. It seems like they create stories about themselves and funny encounters uh, ten times to every other person's one. And that's Landon. Heavy, heavy Kentucky accent, um, and that's him. Every once in a while, the guys would kind of poke fun and they kind of rib at Landon, uh, not only for the goat man story, but for many other things that he would do, and, and he would have fun back. But every once in a while, they would come to a point where it was just a little too much for Landon, and he would respond back in, I don't know if I want to call it a tirade, um, because when somebody really fusses loudly in that, that Kentucky accent, um, it can be somewhat amusing too. So uh, we call it a, kind of a, a fussing fit, is what Landon would go into. So one day we're in Florida, and we're doing our spring training down there. We play about 12 games in, in one week to, to play some warm weather ball. And we're doing the pregame. You've seen this where the coach goes out and he hits these fly balls and ground ball to the team before the game starts as a way for them to kind of warm up and prepare uh, for the game itself. And at the end of this routine, there's always a time where the catcher is out there with just the coach, and the coach will throw the ball straight up and try to kind of slice through the ball to create this pop-up just for the catcher to catch these things that happen every once in a while in a game, and uh, it's a tough ball to hit. And so I was there trying to hit this ball, and I didn't slice through it. I hit it flush, and I launched it into kind of short right center field, high, high fly ball out there. Okay, right? Nobody's on the field at this time. Everybody's cleared. It's me and the catcher on the field. For some reason, Landon the Goatman Owen was out in center field, and the, the picture I remember is the ball went up, me looking, he's doing some type of dance with his headphones on, which is kind of a regular routine for him, uh, out in right center field. And sure enough, as we're tracking him, ball, him, ball, him, ball, you know the rest of the story, the gap closed, boom, right on the top of his head, and the goat man was down for the count. We rushed out to Landon to uh, kind of in horror because a, a ball had just bopped him in the head. And uh, we rushed out to him. And before we even got to him, Landon was on his feet, and he thought the guys were playing a prank. And this is one of those times he had had enough, and he launched directly into one of these fussing fits with this kind of high, squeaky, Kentucky, heavy Kentucky accent. Um, In some places, you use a translator. And uh, (laughs) he started to yell things. Some of his favorite phrases, you know, something like, you guys got to quit. And... uh, you know, he would say something like, every time, 
And that was saying, like, you guys pick on me every time. And his favorite phrase, um, don't throw anything at me, but his favorite phrase was, what the devil's going on around here? And so he was hollering these phrases in, in panic. And uh, just as we arrived to him, the other team is now already lined up kind of for the pregame, the, the pledge and the, those things the, uh, on their side. And we're out there having one of our players yelling and fussing. And he actually picked up the ball that I had hit and turned and threw it at his team standing there as we scattered this is the kind of a fussing fit I'm talking about that uh, is synonymous with Landon the Goatman Owen. Now, that story's fun, but it's an example of him putting himself in the right position at the right time uh, to be impacted. For him, negatively. <laughs> but really the same is true for us. We can learn from the principle that we have to put ourselves in the right spot to hear from God. We have to put ourselves there. I want to tell you a phrase this morning, and maybe this is the key thing you need to remember, if nothing else, this morning. Hearing from God is not an art form. It's a discipline. You hear that? Hearing from God, it's not an art form. It's a discipline. And that means anybody can hear from God. Any of us. It's taking the time to put ourselves in a place where God will speak to us. Often, people think we need to be very artistic to hear from God, and there are some incredible artistic things in how God speaks to people. It's phenomenal, and you know, I'm so excited that churches are open to that now. 20 years ago, that would not have been the case. But it's not an art form. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to spend years developing something. You just have to put yourself in a position to hear from God. It's a discipline. And Saul has put himself in this position. And it is clear, if you read the life of Saul, he has not learned any art form to hearing from God. But it was a discipline of this one time. Maybe the first real time in his life, and maybe as you read the rest of his life, it may be the only clear time that he's put himself in front of God to hear. No one is exempt to see God's will and to hear from God. The writer of Proverbs says this, Search good, and you will find favor. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Do you remember what all those things were in Scripture? It was talking about need, food, clothing. He'll provide it all. You don't have to stress about your needs. That doesn't mean you might not have to work. It doesn't mean it... it, it might be hard, but he says he'll provide it. Seek first his kingdom. What you might simply need to do this morning, on this point, you might need to just evaluate the ways you're allowing God to speak to you. Evaluate your week and ask yourself, what point in my week have I designed something to say, I'm designing this to hear from God? Now, God might speak to us off that schedule, he might speak to us in a ways that we did not expect, but he wants us to design ways where we are going before him to seek him and to hear from him. Do you have daily time in his word where you're opening up your Bible and just reading and seeking? God tells us that this is, is more powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It tells us that it can pierce our hearts. It also says, maybe one of the most powerful verses about his word, 
says that it will not return to us void. I mean, if we read it and we put it into our lives, it is for our good. If not that day, at some point, and it will not return to us that way void. Is there a time of quiet where you can hear God's whisper? Will you drown other things out? Now, I just came off being on a college campus, and one of the things that I learned, and I, I guess I'd been oblivious to it, we would do study halls with my team, mandatory study halls twice a week that they would have to come and be at. And I noticed somewhere in the 75-80% range, as they're doing their homework, whether it's reading, typing a paper, researching, there was always an iPod on. There was always these headphones on, and they're listening to music as they're, they're doing this as well, right? And so I, th- I got a little curious, so I did a little research on it. I wanted to know uh, how that actually uh, interfered. And so I, did, I read a study about reading people that, you know, the, as students that would read with music playing, whether on their headphones or just in the background. And there was 23% less retention of the reading material when there is something outside that is going on. Now, it doesn't have to just be music. It could be a roommate that's kind of interrupting you and talking, but 23 less percent. Do you have a quiet time where you can hear from God that's uninterrupted? How about Christian counsel? Before you launch into something, do you have somebody say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Let me just run it by you and tell, you what you, tell me what you think. Oh, man, the Lord is really speaking to you. Or you are way off base. <laughs> How about what's on your car radio, your iPod? What are you receiving? Maybe this morning we should look at it a different way and insert ourselves into this passage. Among them was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Among them was Nancy, who was reading a Bible. Among them was Carl, who was spending time in prayer. Among them was John, who was hiking alone and listening to God. Or among them was Sarah, who was wearing an iPod of praise music. And you're smart enough to list on and on and put yourself into that this, this morning. What spot are you putting yourself in? Don't think it's just going to happen. You have to actually carve out that time. So these are two things that we learned this morning. You, you have to know you have a need to hear from God, and you have to put yourself in a place to actually hear from Him. And let me, let me finish off by asking just one final question. So what? Why? What's so important about this? As a Wendover Hill family, I feel like right now in our time as a church, seeking God's will is the most important thing we can do. And we have phenomenal music, you know, a good worship morning, great fellowship and community. Um, the, the sweet tea is amazing when people bring sweet tea. I mean, those are all great things that will continue. As a board, we discussed last night some things that we need to address right away and and, and maybe put some more effort and energy into right away. But the key thing we can do as a church is seek God's will. Seeking God's will right now. And so uh, let me give you a little road road map. The road map doesn't really answer the how questions, meaning what programs are going to launch and those type of things. But I think this road map will we'll help God reveal something to us. And this roadmap over the next several weeks is just simply this. It's very simple. I'm just going to call on you to be reading your Bible and praying daily. Asking specifically, Lord, what do you want for Wendover Hills? 
Now, since I've been here, I've heard incredible things people talk about, you know, from the ministry, from the lives touched, the, the people that they're wanting to impact and invite and be here, um, all the way to uh, we see this place filled out with people and chairs, all those type of exciting things. But now I'm asking you to pray and to read your word, seeking God specifically for what he wants to do here. In March and April, we're going to begin a series called How to Grow. It's six weeks. We're going to talk about some key areas, areas like spiritual formation, areas like reaching others, our neighbors, understanding our gifting. I talked about that last week. Honoring God with our resources. What does God call us to do with our time, energy, finances? And creating community and how we can grow in that community. We're going to be looking at all those things. But in the meantime, I'm asking you to seek Seek God here for Windover Hills in God's word and in prayer. And this is what I like to do. I want to call it our next step. And the next step is simply this. I want to call it 2020 vision. Um, some of us are blessed with that, and some of us are not blessed with the 2020 vision. I've been looking at the TV recently, um, and I told Trey, I don't think the, I don't think the TV jack is working right because it's a little blurry. Said, I think it's working just fine. So, so it's about that time in life. I guess. I'm going to call it 2020 vision. Basically, over the next several weeks, I want you to simply read your Bible and pray for 20 minutes a day each. 20 minutes in God's Word and 20 minutes praying. Now, right away, I know 40 minutes a day, you're like, what in the world? What's the matter with that guy? Uh, I realize I've got three little kids. I know what craziness is all about as well. I realize some of you, uh, you work a 40-hour job, but at the end of the week, it's always 55. Um, I realize all that type of stuff. I also realize your passion for Windover Hills and your passion for what God wants to do in the way of transforming lives. And so I'm, I want to encourage you and ask you to join me in spending this time in God's Word. Now, break it up however you need to break it up. Five minutes here, five minutes there, time alone, time with your family, time with your spouse, however you want to break it up, that's fine. This is not a legalistic thing. If you miss a day, you know, there's no beating yourself up. Here. Nobody's going to give you a call and say, you know, hey, you're, you know, you're up to 80 minutes tomorrow. Uh, that's, not, that's not the point of it. So you miss it, just pick up the next day and go. It would be perfectly fine. But I want to ask you to seek 2020 vision, just focusing in the next several weeks. Next week we're going to talk about Jonathan seeking God through action, and uh, we'll talk about that. But uh, for now, we just want to pray and seek God through his word. Are you with me on that? Good, good, five of you. So, good. Are you with me? Excellent, good. So let me pray and, and uh, I'll invite the praise team up. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that uh, this character of Saul, who's not, he's not always looked upon with great favor, Lord, but he gives us this little glimpse, this teaching moment, where he sits before you and says, God, speak to me. And this morning we ask the same God sit us before you as we recognize our need for you. Help us to be in the right spot to just say, Lord, speak. I'm all ears. And Lord, our promise is that when you speak what you say, we will be a people that will do. And so lead us forward in this area, Lord. Help us with this, this commitment of 2020 vision that there would no, not be any, any guilt-ridden, feeling about it, but just a desire to be in your word and a desire to be before you in prayer, 
seeking direction for our own individual lives and our lives as a church. We give you the praise and glory in all of it. In your son's name, amen.